Hello, everyone, and welcome to our final section of our study of systematic theology. Today's lesson is eschatology, which is the study of last things. That comes from a Greek word, eschatos, which actually means last. When we're talking about eschatology, uh, we look at it from two perspectives. One is the personal perspective, and, and the other is, is the cosmic. So let's start uh, with the smaller and move out to the larger. Every person has a personal eschatology, that is, what they believe about how their life will end. And of course, as Christians, we believe that uh, life is linear. We have a beginning at conception, and we live our life, and these bodies ultimately will die. But uh, that's just the body. Uh, we believe also that we have a soul, which is etern eternal, which will spend eternity either in the presence of God or else um, being punished in hell. So it's important to, to study that. Now, some people think that eschatology really is not an important doctrine. I would say that's wrong. It is an important doctrine. I would not put it in the category of an essential doctrine, meaning this. Uh, when we started this study 12 weeks ago, we said that there are some doctrines that if we disagree on, we can't rightly call ourselves brothers or sisters in Christ. Eschatology is not one of those doctrines. Uh, there are many godly men and women who fall uh, to very different understandings of eschatology, but there are certain things that the Bible is very, very clear on, and we'll cover some of those, and then we'll move into some of the areas of, of disagreement. First of all, I want to establish uh, right away why we study eschatology. It would have been very easy to end our, our study last week and, and skip over eschatology, but eschatology matters, according to the Scripture, First uh, John 3 and 2 Peter 3 both indicate that uh, the study of eschatology is a motivation to holiness. Peter says, knowing these things. And of course, he had described the end of the world. Um, how then should we live is the question that we often ask. That is, how should it impact our everyday life? Well, in a number of ways, I think. For one, it gives us hope in the face of death. Um, Earlier today, I uh, preached a funeral message of one of our members here. I have two more of those funerals to preach before Sunday comes around. Uh, that is not altogether unusual here. Uh, in fact, I estimated the other day in the 20 years I've been in Keller, I've probably preached between five and 600 funerals. And I'm reminded at each one that one day I'm going to be the guest of honor at one of those events. Uh, Hebrews tells us that's point to every man wants to die and then to be judged by God. Uh, and people in every epoch of history have wondered what happens when we die. Uh, in the New Testament, for example, believers in a place called Thessalonica uh, had become truly saved, and yet they didn't have any clear teaching on eschatology. And so the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the Apostle Paul to pen two letters to that church. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, he gave them a really an outline of how uh, we are to think about death, and he used the euphemism of, of sleep. He said, I would not have you be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, concerning those which are asleep. And, and of course, that simply means that for a believer to pass from this life is to wake in uh, the next. And so uh, this changes the way we mourn and, and grieve death. Um, it's not a sin to, to grieve the passing of a loved one. Uh, the shortest verse in all the Bible, just two words long, Jesus wept. And Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. But as Christians, Paul says 
the way we grieve is fundamentally different than a hopeless and a lost and a dying world. We grieve with hope, meaning that we have a firm conviction that this life is not all there is. Certainly, we are saddened by a time of separation from one we love, but our blessed hope and assurance is that uh, we will see them again in glory. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 um, tells us that this truth of the resurrection and the truth of the second coming should serve as motivation for us to persevere. There is uh, an end to sin and suffering in the world, and, and the Bible says all those who persevere to the end uh, will be saved. So uh, point being that eschatology is important to study, it, it's, though it's not in the category of an essential doctrine, that is, we don't make it a list, litmus test of who we fellowship with. There are some certain things in the Bible that, that we do hold uh, as very clear, and every true church, as far as I know, teaches these basic truths. And number one among those is that Christ will return one day. We know that in John chapter 14, Jesus told his inner circle of disciples that he was going away and that when he went away he would come again so that they could be together forever but he said in the meantime he's going to prepare a place for them he said in my father's house are many rooms and so Christ has promised to return for his church and of course all the promises of Christ are true he cannot and he will not lie um, and, and so we can rest upon that other passages that bear this out are Acts 1 10 First uh, Thessalonians 4, as I mentioned earlier, Hebrews 9, 28, and Revelation 22, 7. Now, having established Christ will return, where the controversy arises typically is when certain groups or individuals try to make predictions about when that will take place. Now, what the Bible says about Christ's return is that we don't know when that will be. Matthew 24 and also Matthew 25 says that we should always be in a state of readiness um, and, and Jesus warns us that if people say that they know when Jesus is coming, don't believe them because uh, he has not revealed that to, to any man. Um, but when he does come, the Bible says that it's going to be visible. That's found in Re Matthew 24 and Revelation 1 verse 7. That is, uh, people are going to know that he's come back. And probably I think the most important thing to know about Christ's second coming is, is it's for Christians. This teaching is given to us to encourage us. Um, so, so really as we study eschatology, uh, it has been a topic and a doctrine upon which there has been some controversy and, and disagreement. But the, the summary line I would say of eschatology is that we study it as Christians, to encourage our faith, that, that it shouldn't lead to vain speculation. What it should lead to is sanctification. It ought to make us want to uh, continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. Um, we are instructed, in fact, to look forward to Christ's return in 1 Corinthians 16, Philippians 3, um, Revelation 22, among many, many other places. So that uh, basically is a quick overview of, of why we study eschatology. And I'm going to go back now and talk about personal eschatology a little bit. And when we talk about personal eschatology, what we're really talking about is, is the doctrine of, of death. Now, I know that death in our society is something that uh, we don't like to talk about. But as Christians, we should and must talk about it. In fact, I have adopted a saying that I picked up somewhere in the last 25 years of ministry that 
I, I say a lot from our pulpit. In fact, I said it this morning during that funeral I mentioned earlier, and that is this. We're all going to die. We don't know when, and so we better be ready. And that really is, is my theology of death uh, in one sentence. Uh, all people need to think about their own death. Now, no, that doesn't mean we should be morbid. It doesn't mean we uh, ought to, to walk around with a sad face. It just means we need to be realistic about the uh, finite nature of our own, own existence. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a great hero of the faith, and when he was a young boy, he wrote down a series of personal resolutions Uh, the way that he was going to order his life so that he could bring the most glory to Christ. And one of his earliest resolutions was this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now that's a young man, he probably wrote that in his teenage years, and he decided for the rest of his life he was going to think much of his own dying. And the reason being is that he didn't want to waste his life, that he wanted to redeem the time and make the most of the days because he knew that life is a stewardship and that he's going to be held accountable to God for the way that, that he spent his time. And so kind of in our culture and in recent years, the way we deal with death is we sort of don't deal with it and sort of remove ourselves from it and won't be around it and try not to think about it in terms of our own death. Uh, But every time I attend a funeral, I think it's a great opportunity, and I remind the congregation uh, of our own individual mortality. So it's good uh, to think about our our own coming death. Uh, But death is not a natural thing as far as it relates to human beings. God did not create this world to experience death. That is, it was not a part of his original creation. God is the author of life, and when he created man, he says it's good. And remember, he gave to Adam and Eve that perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, in in which to live. But, of course, they violated his prohibition of eating of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, and and therefore uh, sin's curse passed upon Adam and Eve. And part of sin's curse, of course, is, is not only the death of our first parents, though God was gracious and allowed Adam to live uh, to be nearly a thousand years old, Before he died, he eventually did die. Not only did Adam and Eve die, every subsequent generation is born in the world with a death sentence. Uh, So Romans 5.12 clearly says that death entered the world because and through Adam's sin. Um, Death is is the just punishment and and the payment of sin, and it's it's universal in nature. Um, Now there are, of course, uh, two individuals that I can think of um, in the Old Testament, that technically did not die. Uh, one is in the genealogies in the book of Genesis chapter 5, the man Enoch. The scripture says Enoch walked with God and was not. And I take that to be Enoch walked so closely with the Lord that uh, one day the Lord just took him into heaven without having to experience death. And the other, of course, is Elijah, the great prophet of the Lord who God took up in a chariot of fire. So uh, other than those two exceptions to the rule, everyone else has died or, or will die. In fact, the New Testament, Paul calls death the, the final or the, the last enemy, and yet Jesus has um, declared, declared his victory over that last enemy death through his resurrection. And that's why when we were studying the resurrection, I said it was such an essential doctrine because the resurrection of Jesus uh, proved a couple of things. One, that God the Father was 
totally and completely satisfied and pleased with the sacrifice of his son. And the other thing that it proved is that Jesus is more powerful uh, than death. So that's personal eschatology. But most of the books that you'll come in contact with and in most of the conversations that you will have with your friends surrounding eschatology are not uh, on the side of personal eschatology. It typically is speaking of cosmic eschatology. That is, how's the world going to end? And so uh, there are several points of view in the evangelical church concerning uh, that truth, but most of them surround six verses found in the book of Revelation. And if you have your Bible, you can open with me now, and I'm going to turn there and read those verses. And we're going to keep coming back to these verses for the rest of our time today because all of the different eschatological systems that you are familiar with are based upon the interpretation of these six verses. So let me read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel. Now remember, this is John, the Apostle John, um, is the only of the apostles, the original apostles, that did not die a martyr's death, as far as we know. As an old man, he was uh, sentenced to isolation on the Isle of Patmos, and there on the Isle of Patmos, he was given a series of visions, and he was given a, an incredible um, privilege in that uh, he was allowed to see into the future as to how the world ends and uh, he was told to write down what he saw and we have that recorded as the book of revelation and so uh, let me start over then revelation 21 then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead, and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now that last prepositional phrase at the end of verse 6 is really where all of the differences and nuances um, arise from. What do we mean, or what does the Bible mean, um, by this thousand years? Well, um, my little boy, who is eight, is uh, really progressing in his reading this year. He'll be in third grade next year, and he came upon a word recently, and he was uh, studying a chapter in his tech book, textbook on time. And he was having a difficult time putting together the different words we use for time. And so we started with seconds, and we worked our way all the way up to millennia. And so uh, one of our smallest increments of time is a second, and then 60 seconds makes a minute, and then uh, 60 minutes makes an hour, and 24 hours makes a day, and 30 or 31 days makes a month, and 12 months makes a year. 
10 years makes a decade, and 100 years or 10 decades makes a century, and 10 centuries or 1,000 years is a millennia. And so what we're talking about today is the millennium. You'll often hear it said like that in theological circles. What do we mean when we talk about the, the millennium? Well, we're talking about chapter 20, verse 6, the last sentence that I just read, which says that Christ will reign for a thousand years. And so there's three basic views of the millennium. The first is what we call the premillennial position, pre meaning before. And that basically means, and this will be on your vocabulary words today on your outline, premillennialism is the teaching that the second coming of Christ will precede a period of a thousand years during which Christ will reign on the earth. That is, the teaching is that uh, at a certain point in history, Jesus is going to come and set up a visible kingdom. Now, I often say from our pulpit that the kingdom of God has an already and not yet element to it. That is, Christ is already ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives and minds of believers. But it's certainly not universal. In fact, the vast majority of people in the world reject the deity and the reign of Jesus in the world. But there's coming a day, the Bible indicates, in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, And uh, those who hold to the premillennial position believe that that will uh, start at the the beginning or or preceding this literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. Now, the second position is called postmillennial position. And that is this, that the second coming of Christ will be at the end of the millennium, pre-before, post-after, or at the end. And, And what that... Uh, position teaches, and we'll get into this a little more detail in a moment, basically is that there will be a golden age of Christianity for a thousand years, and when things get thoroughly Christianized, and we're talking about the government, we're talking about entertainment, we're talking about the media, that every aspect of society is improved to the point that Jesus can settle down and be at home here and be comfortable, then he's going to come back and Set up, and, and, and I can imagine some of you are chuckling at that who've been watching the news lately. It doesn't think, seem like things are getting better. In fact, it seems like things are getting worse all the time. But this particularly, uh, particular uh, point of view was very popular, especially at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, uh, when there was an incredible amount of progress made in the missions movement when uh, Christians were going into Africa and South America and they were seeing uh, thousands, even millions of people converted to Christ, they were building hospitals and um, life was getting better for a lot of people. And, and, and this sort of idea that it's just going to continue in an unbroken chain of improvement until Christ can, can come and set up his kingdom here. And, and then came along World War I, uh, which, by the way, was not called World War I at the time. It was called by most historians the war to end all wars because they thought, well, surely we made such a mistake in killing so many people. We'll never make that mistake again. And, and then a couple of decades later, World War II came along and killed even more people. And so um, post-millennialism is not a very popular position. There are a few people still hold to it, but uh, I would say very, very few. Um, The third position that has gained a lot of traction in recent years 
especially among young people, is the amillennial position. Just put the letter A in front of millennial, which means not or no. And that is they would see the millennium as an indefinite period of time rather than a literal thousand years. That is, it's a metaphor. Um, And so Christ then will return. By the way, all three of these positions have Christ literally returning. That's why we say it's we don't make it a listmus test for faith. And our, our, our Baptist faith and message uh, on the article on eschatology, basically all it says that if you believe that Christ is coming back, you can be a Baptist. And so we don't have a specific eschatological position that Southern Baptists uh, require or even hold to. But uh, the amillennial position says that this thousand years is a metaphor and it really stands for an indefinite period of time which began when Christ was born and will end when Christ returns. So those are the three basic positions. But within those three positions, there are many nuances and many um, subtle differences. So, so let's go back to amillennialism. Um, and let's talk about three or four. Remember, I always try to say that let, let's get three or four pegs that we can hang our hat on. And we could go a lot of different directions. We don't have time to do that. You can study that on your own, or we can talk privately. But, but basically, those that hold to amillennialism would say this, that the millennium is now. We are living in it. So sometimes we call this time in which we live the age of grace. That is the time from when Christ came to earth and when he comes the second time. Uh, and they would call that the millennium. And so, again, that thousand years uh, is not a literal thousand years in their mind. It, it's simply an indefinite period of time. Uh, and they would say that Christ's millennial reign happens in heaven rather than earth, that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has already started to rule and reign, but they don't see a time when Christ comes and sets up a literal kingdom here on earth and, and rules here. Um, one of the other tenets of this belief is that Satan is, is bound now they would say that this happened in the early part of Jesus' ministry. Remember when he was casting out the demons wherever he went? And the reason they say Satan is bound is that in those parts of the world that were dominated by Satan, the gospel now is invading. Um, and, and so uh, that's their point of view on Satan. And so when they talk about the resurrection, uh, we just read about in verses 4 and 5 in, in Revelation 20, they don't see that as a literal resurrection, rather a spiritual or a metaphorical resurrection, not a literal bodily resurrection. And as it relates to the return of Christ, um, there will be, they believe, at that moment, uh, the resurrection of both believers and unbelievers at the same time, and then there will be the final judgment. And this will happen without this interruption of a a literal thousand-year earthly kingdom. Now, the second uh, popular position is called historic premillennialism. It's called historic because uh, it goes all the way back to the, the first through the third centuries. Many of the ancient church fathers, like Irenaeus, held to this uh, position. And so to distinguish it from um, dispensational premillennialism, which was, we'll talk about in a moment, we, we often call it historic premillennialism. It also has four or five important tenets to it. Number one is that historic premillennialists teach that Jesus will return before the millennium starts. That's why we use that prefix pre. But after the great tribulation, uh, the Bible speaks of a seven-year period. And 
We're studying the book of Daniel right now, and when we get to chapter 9, we're going to talk about that 70th week of Daniel, which many people view as synonymous with the Great Tribulation. And so historic premillennialism teaches that Jesus will come after this seven years of tribulation. It also teaches that when Jesus returns, the believers who have died will be raised from the dead, but the unbelievers will not. Now, that's a difference between amillennialism. Remember, amillennialists believe that the believers and unbelievers all will be resurrected at the same time. And when the Scripture talks about the first resurrection, they interpret that as for believers only, and it is a literal bodily resurrection and not metaphorical. Thirdly, this position teaches that upon his return, Jesus will begin his millennial reign on earth. Again, not a metaphor that he will have a literal kingdom and and the resurrected believers will reign with him. And then fourthly, at the end of that, that literal thousand years, the unbelievers who have died will be raised and then that's when we have the final judgment and from there we move into the eternal state, which we would call classically heaven and hell. Now, related to that is another premillennial view, and that is what's called dispensational premillennialism. And I would wager that most Baptists have been influenced heavily by dispensational premillennialism, although as a concept, it's only been around about 200 years. It originated in the early 1800s with a gentleman named J.N. Darby, He was the first at least to articulate uh, this dispensationalist understanding of of premillennialism. But many of us, I think certainly if we don't hold to the position thoroughly, hold to certain tenets of it, or certainly we were taught to hold certain tenets of it. Um, Probably the most noteworthy thing to say about it is the existence of a concept known as the rapture or the secret rapture, it's sometimes called. And so uh, let me give you three or four pegs about dispensational premillennialists. Number one, there will be a rapture of the church before the millennium when Christ's secret coming. And so this is not the second coming. A lot of well-meaning Baptists get this confused. We, we sometimes use the term Jesus' second coming and the rapture interchangeably. And according to this system, those are two separate events. And so the rapture where the church is taken out of the world, according to this system, precedes the uh, millennial kingdom. But between the rapture and the second coming, there will be a seven-year period of, of tribulation. Here's the 70th week of Daniel. And then after the second coming, there will be a, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And so uh, probably your head's spinning a little bit by now. Uh, all these different uh, timelines and events, that, that's probably why Uh, When I was a boy growing up, if you went into any Baptist pastor's study or office, uh, at least one of his four walls was likely to be covered with a chart or a graph trying to explain the chronological events of eschatology. And depending upon which um, camp he was in, depended on uh, uh, what chart he had. But um, try to think through this clearly. Um, one more thing to say about dispensational premillennialism is this, that after the millennium, that is after a literal thousand-year reign on earth, there will be a resurrection of unbelievers, the final judgment, and then uh, what we call um, the eternal state. Now, 
Um, let's talk finally a little bit about uh, going back to personal eschatology because I think that's really where the rubber hits the road with people. What's going to happen to them? So, so let's pose the question. What happens when we die? I, I don't know anyone who has lived very long at all that hasn't contemplated the answer to that question. Well, theology builds on itself. And 12 weeks ago when we were talking about creation, we said that on the sixth day of creation, God created man. He said he's good. And he created man with both a body and a soul. And so what we can say in describing death is that at the point of death, the body and the soul are separated. And when we die, our body goes in our Western world, usually into the ground through burial or, or we're cremated. But eventually, whether it's uh, quickly or over many decades, the Bible says we return to dust. And so, as I said in the funeral today, therefore it's much more important to spend time developing our soul rather than our body. So, so the question really is, what happens to our soul when we die? We know our body's temporary. Well, different people have had different points of view on that. Um, I think it's important to say what we don't believe and what the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible in nowhere in the Old or New Testament teach that after death there is a second chance for salvation. Of course, that is the teaching of many, many sects and cults, uh, and to some degree, the Roman Catholic Church with their concept of purgatory. A uh, concept of purgatory is that uh, when a person dies, they go to this sort of intermediary place where they have to suffer enough to, to uh, be clean enough to get to heaven. That is, uh, they would say that uh, faith in Christ alone was not enough. To that, they would add purgatory. It's the idea of purging sin, that's the root word of purgatory, in a place of suffering. Uh, and it's contrary to what the Bible says, uh, how sin is dealt with. Sin is dealt with thoroughly and completely, the Bible says, at the cross with his once-for-all sacrifice, never having to be repeated. And, and that's why, without putting too fine a point on it, in uh, evangelical homes you will not find crucifixes. Now, you might find crosses, but uh, you will not find a crucifix in which there is a statue of Christ nailed to the cross because uh, the fundamental tenet of our belief is that Jesus is not on the cross. He's alive, and he never has to, to, to be sacrificed again. So we reject the concept of purgatory. We also reject the concept of soul sleep. Um, I think because Paul used the metaphor of sleeping in Thessalonian, to the Thessalonian church, some have suggested that when we die, we go into this sort of state of uh, unawareness or unconscious existence. And, and when we wake up, it could be a day or it could be 10,000 years, but we'll have no conscious of past time. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, it seems to teach just the opposite. The Bible says uh, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9. Uh, probably the most famous passage is when Jesus was speaking to the thief on the cross and the thief expressed faith that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Jesus says, this day, today, you will be with me um, in paradise. Um, and so again, 1 Thessalonians 5, whether we are alive or asleep, we're going to live with Jesus. 
Um, Revelation 6 talks about the souls of the martyred dead crying out to God from under the altar. They are not asleep, but they have a conscious existence. Uh, and of course, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus talks about not only Lazarus uh, having a conscious existence in the bosom of Abraham, but uh, um, the, the rich man who was being tormented also had a conscious existence. And so um, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so then uh, we take that to mean that at some point in the future when Christ returns at the resurrection, wherever you believe that to be on the chart of eschatology, at the resurrection of the righteous dead, that we are going to receive resurrected bodies, bodies which are like Jesus, which are fit for heaven, which can tolerate being in his Shekinah glory presence all of the time, uh, bodies that do not wear out, bodies that are not subject to death or dying. And so let, let me close the lesson today by reading a passage of scripture that I read almost every graveside service that I perform. And again, the words of John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Hear this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So I want to go back to what I started with today. Don't let the study of eschatology divide you. Uh, don't let it uh, confound you or confuse you. At the end of the day, the purpose of the study of eschatology is to encourage you that all of Christ's promises to you are true, that he's right now preparing a place for you and that one day he's going to come again and that he's going to make right everything that was made wrong because of sin's entrance into the world. So I think that we'll put a period on our 12-week study of systematic theology right there. I want to thank all of you for sticking with us. Hope you'll go back and listen and share that with others uh, in your sphere of influence who have questions. I want to thank Rob Eisenman, who has been here every week uh, recording us and editing these lessons and making me sound way better than I actually am. I want to thank also uh, the many guests that we've had over these 12 weeks. Um, and I, I want to thank our church for, for making all of this possible. If you want to talk to me privately, you can call me anytime at the church office, 817-431-2545. You can email me at ksanders at fbckeller.org, and I hope you will. And so we have one more guest today, and let's uh, bring him at this point. Our guest today is a friend of First Baptist Keller, former member here, Chad Ray. Chad and his wife, Shanda, live with their children in Marshall, Texas these days. Chad, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Pastor Keith. I appreciate it very much. Well, I know our people want to know how you and all of your family are doing through the Corona pandemic and how you're faring out in East Texas. Well, so far, it, it hasn't been very bad. Uh, Harrison County, which is the county that I live in, that Marshall is in, uh, we have some, but it, it's uh, for the most part, it hasn't hit us too bad. And uh, where we live out on our 16 acres, we kind of say to ourself and and uh so it, it's not hit us very bad i've still got plenty of work and uh so it's been all right 
Chad, I think we met when we were both uh, single men in our Sunday school class here. Uh, We uh, also had my wife, Melissa, in that class, and we later married, of course. Over the years, I know you have developed an interest in theology and ministry. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, uh, it it started because uh, the Lord saved me. And uh, I was driving home from work one day, and um, I guess I'd been what I felt like pretending uh, is what I later felt like uh, to be a Christian. And it just, it occurred to me, it wasn't the Damascus Road, but it was uh, right there off 407 where Cabela's is. I was exiting, and and, uh, it just hit me all at once. I'd been listening to preaching and, and the teaching there at Keller, and I just cried out, God help, and, and he did, and he saved me on that day, and I feel like that day I was uh, called to the ministry uh, as well to take the Bible study more serious, and so whenever I got home uh, from February of 2009 when that occurred, uh, I haven't looked back, and, and I've just had a deep passion to learn everything and anything I can uh, about theology. Amen. I can certainly verify that. You've had a hunger to learn, and uh, because you're sort of a non-traditional student, that is, you came to faith as an adult, uh, you already had a career. Uh, you're also uh, a veteran of the military. You learned a lot on your own, didn't you? Um, how has that process worked? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, well, and the, the awesome thing was is I, I had at my disposal a plethora of men that have been trained uh, from different seminaries that were available to me to go ask questions. And so the first thing I did was I looked at probably, oh, I would say 50 different websites, uh, different bachelor's degree level schools, just looking for a book list of what would be required. And I finally found one, and it was for the Bachelor of Arts in Christian Ministry at um, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Their, Their college now, I think, is called the Spurgeon College. But at the time, it was just their undergrad program. And, uh, and so I took that list up to the pastors there at Keller and, and asked each one of you guys, is this a good book or is there one better than this that I ought to get? And so I just started getting the books off of that list and then recommendations and then uh, yourself and Dr. Wright and Casey Lewis and... and um, uh, I got Tony uh, and Lawrence and, and everyone there made available to me any book I wanted to read in their library. And and so I just started reading all those and started going that route. That's great. And of course, at uh, that time, we were meeting with several of the men in the church. We had sort of a theological roundtable every Wednesday. We had a great time doing that. Uh, so tell us what you've been doing most recently. I know you've pastored two churches since you left Keller and uh, right now, I think you're working with some men who are in a recovery program. Uh, yes, sir. So on uh, on Monday and Thursday of every week, I go to one the one I go to on Thursday. That's the one I, I start doing right off the bat. That is uh, called Twelve Way Foundation here in Marshall off FM 31, and it's for men that have uh, struggled with alcohol and drug abuse, and uh, they're they won't accept them if they have different they have different qualifications but most of those are if you have aggravated things that you can't get into the program or if you have um uh some other more serious mental crimes that they're not equipped to handle at that facility 
And so, uh, so you can get in there. And what I do is, uh, and I do, and it's the same thing for Isaiah 58 out in Deberry. Uh, they're ran a little different, but they're similar. Uh, so I just come in there on Monday and, and I get an hour, uh, and then on Thursday at the other place. And I just picked a book of the Bible, started out with Colossians and just started going through, uh, the book of Colossians. Now, what I did first, I felt was very important was we went through this little book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? And we just went through that book in both those places, and then I started out in Colossians. And then right now, currently, I'm in Ephesians 3. Start that today, actually. And uh, and so I, I just preach verse by verse, theolog- uh, exegetically, through the sermon so that they can hear and see the way that a, an expository sermon sounds. Well, Chad, this is our last class in our introduction to systematic theology, and I suspect there are some people who have been following us these three months who want to learn more or have further interest in theology. In your case, it ultimately led to a four-year bachelor's degree, and now you're getting ready to start seminary. Could you recommend some good resources for a person that wants to study theology on their own? Uh, Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm actually five weeks into my uh, seminary degree, and so uh, uh, just started Old Testament one. So, uh, but yes, uh, there are several things out there that over the years I've looked at and found. Um, eSword is a Bible software that's completely free. Now, if you get it on your phone, I think it costs a little bit, but you can get that on your computer, and that is a nice software that you can use. Uh, there's Precepts Austin that actually has commentaries and it's full of information uh, and ha- on most verses of the Bible and it runs through it uh, pretty exegetically as well. And then different Bible topics. There's uh, ibcd.org, that's Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. There's a phone app that you can get that answers a lot of questions. We recommend for anyone that we counsel that uh, wants to be married or that's having marital problems, we have them download this app and listen to the, the parts that deal with marriage. It's, it's a very wonderful resource. Uh, then there's third mill, T-H-I-R-D-M-I-L-L.org, and then biblicaltraining.org, and both of those are free seminary-type classes, and you can take courses through them, and it's all absolutely free. Uh, another great one has been you know YouTube. you got to be careful with YouTube, but the Master Seminary has their courses on there. They're archives courses. Um, and then I would advise to get as many translations as you can, uh, and then study Bibles, and then just compare those notes. I think um, uh, the concordance is a valuable tool, Atlas, uh, and the Bible dictionary. And and I think if you if you do all that, you'll, you'll have a not a whole lot of money invested, but you'll have a really sound uh, theological training that can help you to understand uh, Scripture better. If we're not careful, we can study theology sort of as recreational hobby. Uh, you know the way some people play golf and some people study theology. But as a believer, what would you say has been the greatest benefit to your personal sanctification uh, from your study of systematic theology? Well, I think uh, putting it to work, because uh, the Bible... It, it's not just for hearing things or learning things, it's to apply them in our lives. And so uh, whenever I think about my children, they like to do things for me so that I will have pleasure in what they've done. And 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 for so for, for God, our Father, 
he has pleasure in, when we're in obedience to him. And so uh, I try to use these different ideas that I, that are concrete and that we learn from theology to actually apply them in my life and to talk to people wherever I go about Jesus Christ. And, and uh, if we do that, we don't have to pray for someone to be put into our, our path, although that's a good idea, because people are in our path all the time, and we share the Word of God with them, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, uh, with them as we go. And uh, so I think that's kind of how I, I just put it in perspective that way. It For me, it is fun. I can get kind of nerdy when it gets into that. Like you said, it's just something I enjoy, like others enjoy golfing. Uh, but it has a practical application in obedience to the to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. Chad, it's always good to talk with you. I appreciate the good work that you and Shanda are doing there in East Texas. Please send our love, and we look forward to the next time we get to see you face-to-face. As always, we like to close our class, and not only our class, uh, but our entire study uh, today with a word of prayer. Chad, how can we pray specifically for you and your family and your ministry? Wisdom for the decision that we make in, in what we're doing, uh, it would be very beneficial. But uh, something that's also nice is we finished a foundation at the front of our property, and we're having a building being built on that this Thursday. So pray for that to go smoothly. Uh, and then just my work with my different customers that I have, that uh, those would go well. And for our children to uh, to be able to, as we do homeschool, for them to grasp the, the things that they're being taught. Let's thank the Lord for what we've learned and been reminded of and uh, ask the Lord to, to grow us in his image. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and none of us make claim that we understand it perfectly. We thank you uh, that we can put uh, the thoughts of the Bible about any specific truth um, in an orderly fashion, and we call that systematic theology. Uh, Lord, we know your word is truth, and so uh, we want to study who you are and what you're like and what your plan is. We know the essence of idolatry is believing and teaching and thinking things about you, our creator, that are not true. And so, Lord, we want to uh, walk in truth. And we thank you for those who've gone before us, who've uh, helped us, who've written books, uh, Father, who have uh, left recordings and who have written articles and Father, thank you for all those. Uh, I want to thank you especially for Matt Pitts, um, one of our own who grew up here, whose uh, help on this class was invaluable. I pray a blessing on all of um, the different pastors and professors that we've talked to over this 12-week period. Thank you for Rob Eisenman and his help uh, with the technological side of this. Uh, thank you for uh, Chad Ray, our guest today. And Pray for he and Shanda and their children there in East Texas, Lord, that you would use them in a mighty way um, for your glory. Pray, Father, that you dismiss us now with your grace. We thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.